It's always a fun thing when you're uh, preparing sermons and you write down these these notes and, and put points in. And you're like, man, that's a great point. And then you drive home because you're tired and you go into your house and you sit down on your couch to relax a little bit and you hear water dripping. And you think to yourself, well, that can't be good. And you get up and you start looking for that space and that, that spot where the water is dripping and you realize it's behind your washer and dryer that are stacked and you're home alone. So what do you do? Yeah, you hurt, you hurt your back pulling it out. Then you get to the inside of your, of your utility room and there's water dripping from behind the drywall. It's not a fitting. It's not, a, it's not something simple. And so in joyful glee, you start tearing at drywall in the back of your house to find that. And somewhere in the midst of that, you're hitting on it and you wrap your knuckles on the iron gas pipe that's in there. And then you get all the drywall off and the gas line starts dripping water. The water lines aren't dripping water. There's water coming off the gas line and you find this little pinhole that's spraying water out of there. And you just thank Jesus. What? You guys aren't behaving very well. I mean, one of my points in here is that it matters what, who we believe Jesus is because it changes how we live. I got to be honest with you, I was, I was struggling with my attitude this week, and I was, I'm thinking through this text going, Lord, why are we talking about King Herod? What does it matter what King Herod thought of Jesus and, and all, of this, all, all of this moment in, in the Gospel of Mark? He chooses to bring us back to a story uh, to, to explain what happens to John the Baptist in pretty, pretty graphic detail. And I thought, as I'm wrestling with this, why? I mean, yeah, the fame of Jesus is growing, and, and this ultimately ends up impacting the disciples' life, but um, how does it impact us today? And, and I'm, I'm literally uh, ripping drywall off of my off my wall, wrestling with my attitude of, I'm angry, just being honest. Um, it, it happens to be a chunk of copper pipe that I left in the wall uh, with pecs all around it that I replaced when I had it all torn apart. Um, and so I was facing all that frustration and all of those elements thinking, how does this help with my sermon prep? And... Uh, I think as we go through, as, as we wrap up this morning, you may see a little bit of what God was doing with me in my own heart in that process. But I want to encourage you today as we engage in the text in, in Mark chapter 6 this morning, um, that, that at some point all of us are going to get a chance to exercise this, right? Uh, at some point, all of us are going to be tired and frustrated and, and going home to get some rest, and something's not going to go the way we planned it. Um, I mean, if you have children, you have extra opportunities for that. And then once your children are gone, you, you're gone, you figure out that's why God let old age happen and your memory start to lapse and pipes to break, because you need those opportunities. So I just want to encourage you, if you had a discouraging week, then you're right on track. We're in good shape together, and we should be pretty ready for what God's going to do this morning, I think. Mark chapter 6, follow along with me, would you, in your Bibles. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. 
Remember, too, I just want to remind us, this we're following up with Jesus sending out the 12 apostles, uh, apostles on their uh, missionary journey, their first missionary journey. So they're out uh, calling people to repent and, and testifying. And, uh, and so this is the, the follow-up of this. And so we pick that up in uh, verse 14 of Mark chapter 6. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought, him, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. So it's an interesting thing in the Gospel of Mark, right? Have, if you guys have noticed, it's not often that Mark gives us a ton of detail in the scenarios, in the stories, right? Uh, most of the stories, most of what we've seen up to this point have been much more concise snippets. They're not, they're not filled with this much detail. But here when we get to the story of Herod, we have great detail and, and a ton of information. And, and again, in this this a similar pattern, we see the question seems to be, who is this Jesus? Who is this guy? His name's getting out, what he's doing is getting out, and people are asking this question. They are perplexed by it, and they are talking about it. It's obviously a, a big part of who they're talking about, what they're talking about. And it's interesting uh, that, that John the Baptist would be one of the people that they're thinking it is. And we're going to look at a text earlier uh, uh, that happened earlier before John was taken uh, actually captive by uh, King Herod. And we'll see that this is something that the people have been wrestling with as they watch John's ministry. And, and they've, they've been very curious about it. But what's the big deal about Elijah? Why is that is that who they say you are, is Elijah. Remember, uh, we're going to see this in a few chapters, actually, because Jesus is going to ask Peter, who do the people say that I am, or his disciples? And they're going to testify, and, and somebody will mention Elijah. I think one of the reasons that they mention Elijah is very valid. If you look at Malachi chapter 4, or Malachi, or 
however you want to say it. Just for, I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have read through Malachi, but it's like right before Matthew, so that'll help you get there. And we're going to read the whole chapter 4, so just hang on, it's six verses. Look at what it says, Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that, it will be, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Israel, even at this moment, they were anticipating the return of Elijah, the return of the Lord. They were, they were focused on that, probably for good reason, right? They were under Roman captivity. Pretty significant reason to want God to come back, right? I mean, uh, don't we tend to want God, the Lord to come back? I mean, we're, we're anticipating His return. There's great glorious truth and hope that is presented for His children when He returns. And, and so in that moment, as they are beginning to see Jesus and who He is, several of the people, many of the people, I think, in their discussions and in, in their home discussions and probably around the sanctuary, the, the, this, uh, um, oh, my mind just went, the synagogue, thank you. Uh, around the synagogue in those areas, that, that that was the discussion. Who is this guy? Who has this kind of power? We know God has promised to send Elijah. He's promised that he's going to return and establish his kingdom. And I, I think it's interesting uh, in the context of how they, the, the people respond to Jesus, um, the correlation that at times we find, or at least I find, um, in, in my life. I, I don't know how many of us are so focused on, on what Christ is bringing, um, but I sense at times that we can get overly focused on that. And what I mean by that is that that becomes our obsession as opposed to living our daily life with Christ here on the earth, that, that we're looking to His coming and it distracts us from being actively engaged even today. Um, and you guys, I want to tell you... I, I get it. Uh, this isn't Kansas anymore, right? This isn't this isn't the home. Uh, you, you, when you when you watch the news, or you think about the things that are in discussions all across our country. It's not like it was when I was a kid. Um, things have changed dramatically. And our temptation, I think, would be very similar to the people of Jesus' day is to get focused and to see those things and to become distressed by them and quite possibly to be distracted from what Christ might have us do today and to live in that truth. And I, I hope that that becomes evident. I, I do want to take just a minute. You've got to see this. It's, it's really an incredible thing. Uh, the question is, why King Herod? Why would, why would Mark use King Herod? Well, one, one thing I think that's pretty not, not good or 
cool in that sense, but it's a unique aspect. Uh, king Herod, this, this King Herod, his father uh, was, was the king that actually went and killed all the babies after Jesus was born. The two-year-old and down to try and wipe out Jesus, to make sure that this coming king that, excuse me, that the wise men shared with him about, and that was in Matthew chapter 2. So if you want to go back and catch up with that, just put down in your notes, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, it would be a great read. So I think one of the reasons that we see King Herod is because as a king, as a Jew, um, he had a responsibility to be leading Israel and leading them towards the Lord and directing them in those areas. Um, I, I love in Deuteronomy, uh, you don't have this in your notes, so if you want it, you can turn in your Bibles there and mark it down for later. But I just want to read you a short piece of what the kings was supposed to be doing um, for the nation of Israel. And this was in Deuteronomy. This was, this was even before uh, Samuel set Saul over Israel and all of the chaos that happens there. But look at what, look at what Deuteronomy, look, what the law said about how kings are to behave. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from commandment from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel isn't that like amazing Okay, you guys are not as amazed as I am about that. I think it's incredible that the king's required to write his own copy approved by the he had to go to bible school you guys he had the Levitical priest watching over him, making sure that he wrote it correctly. And so he'd have his own copy. Because having the law, having a familiarity with it, knowing it and reading it and studying it was required of the kings of Israel. I love the fact that in there you also have not too many wives, not too many horses, not too much gold. All of which they failed at, right? Constantly completely denied the, the, the clear set guidelines that God had given them. It's very interesting. I think another key to why Herod, why are we looking at King Herod here? Uh, Jesus' ministry actually starts when King Herod arrests John. Remember back in Mark chapter 1, verse 14? It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
King Herod is playing a pivotal role in this process. King Herod, I believe, had a responsibility to be leading Israel towards the Messiah, to, to, to be leading them in their worship of God. But he had a condition, didn't he? He was conflicted by sin. We see that in this text. It's amazing. You see, you actually see him talk about the, the, the idea that he loved to hear John speak. The end of verse 20, it says, When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Just before that, he feared John. He knew, he knew that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. He was protecting him from Herodias, from her desire to have him killed. And so we see this conflict in him. It, it reminds me of the, the passage in Galatians that we read uh, last week, actually. Galatians uh, chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Here, John had been testifying uh, in the, in the, to the public, not just to King Herod. He was testifying to the public what the law was saying. He was calling people to repent, to return to the Lord. King Herod specifically, he was calling him out on this particular issue. It sounds like there was more going on, but just in this particular issue of him marrying his brother's wife. And if you want to read the law around that, it's in Leviticus 18. Uh, it, it, there's a whole lot of reading, but it's all about this. And it lays it out really, really clearly what was supposed to happen, what was not supposed to happen. Um, you, you can write, mark that down in your Bibles and go back and check that out. But King Herod was being confronted by John. It was driving his current, his wife Herodias nuts, his brother's wife actually. And he found himself conflicted. He found himself in a moment where he's enjoying the sin of his flesh. And it comes and crashes right into his concern or his, I don't know what it was. There was something about hearing the word of God that intrigued him. There was something about what John said that, that he wanted to hear it. It, it, it sparked something in his heart. Because otherwise, why would he listen to this? And so clearly he saw something or heard something or felt something that was, that was creating conflict. And then we end up in this birthday moment where... Party's going on, and he's drinking, and he's hanging out with his buddies, and his niece. I just want you to put your head around this. His niece comes out to dance for them. And whatever it was, it was in such a way that he offered her up to half his kingdom. And again, whether or not he meant half his kingdom or if he just meant he was going to give her tons of money, I don't know what the cultural value of that was. Several commentators were giving some of their great deep insight because they were there. I have no idea. The reality is, is that the text says that he offered her a great reward. And when she asked for John's head, he was conflicted. 
because the sin that he was indulged in, the pride of his life, his, the arrogance and his reputation came crashing into whatever he believed about John's value and position and, and his presence before the Lord. Who was John the Baptist? Was, did God send him? Was he part of that prof- prophecy that Herod was supposed to be listening to and responding to? What was that? that this is the conflict that we see him have, and, and you can see it in the text. He said he was, he was sorry, exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath, because of the sin of his flesh, he sent and had John beheaded. Sounds like a conflict, doesn't it? So who did King Herod say John the Baptist or Jesus was? Somehow I went to John the Baptist. I'm just curious, does that happen often in their culture? They take a guy's head off and he's out walking around a few months later? I mean, I'm being a little sarcastic, but why would he go there? What what would cause him to think that that has happened? As opposed to responding to Jesus as who Jesus is saying that he is, and the testimony that his disciples are saying that he is, why would Herod go to John the Baptist being, uh, being raised from the dead? And I, I'm not saying I have an answer, because I really don't know, uh, other than the fact that maybe John the Baptist was easier to stomach than Christ being the Messiah. Um, but it just seems extremely odd to me that you would think that this guy that's walking around healing people is the guy that I beheaded. And yet that's where he lands. And what does the text tell us why? Because we see in the text why he he believes that somehow John is connected to this. It was in verse 14, right? He says, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. King Herod saw something in John that he knew was connected to God, that he knew was supernatural. And when Jesus, the testimony of Jesus begins to come across the country and his fame begins to grow, King Herod goes, man, there's something similar. There's something about this that's connected. There's miracles happening here. There's a power that's working in this that I, I somehow, he, he connected to, remembered about John the Baptist or had some association with John the Baptist. And he said, that must be who this is. It seems a little far-fetched to me. But that's what King Herod believed. That's, that is what we are being told in the story. So why does it matter who people believe Jesus is? Why does that matter? Because we keep seeing it in the text. In fact, it's going to continue to go through Mark all the way up, I believe, and, and, until he's actually resurrected and the, the disciples see him And they respond to him through the power of the Holy Spirit in a right way. And they realize who he is. I believe that the reason it matters is because knowing who Jesus is changes how we live. If Jesus was just a good man that had good ideas, it might be a good idea to consider him, right? might be a good idea to follow him. If that's all he is, and, and his principles work to, to give us a better life, okay. We could consider it. But if, if Jesus is who the disciples testified that he was, 
If Jesus is who John the Gospel, John the writer of John or John's Gospel, if John uh, says that he is, then he's God in the flesh. He's the Messiah, the prophesied coming King who is going to sit on the throne and establish God's kingdom and bring all of those things that we saw in Malachi, bring them to truth, to to present existence on this earth. Then it changes a little bit about how we respond to him, right? Then it's not just a guy that's got good ideas. If he's the creator God of the universe that's going to come and reestablish his kingdom and he's going to judge the evil and he's going to reward the righteous, then there's a significant difference in how we respond to him and the implications that it has in our lives. I love this passage. Look at what, uh, look at what the people are asking John the Baptist. Um, you know, sometimes you wonder, what was John teaching? What was he preaching that was causing so much trouble? If you look in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 10, we're going to watch John the Baptist as he's calling people to repent and their response to him. It's, it's, it's pretty spectacular. Luke chapter 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, to be baptized, or teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threat or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice from heaven that came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased." Isn't it interesting that even Christ hadn't died on the cross yet, but John the Baptist was calling the people of Israel to repent, to return to the Lord. And and he's even challenging uh, soldiers and tax collectors and all the people. And we see even in this text that there's a great number of things that he was going after Herod for. It was not a small, it was not one thing. John seemed to be lobbying stuff at him on a pretty regular basis. And so here's in John the Baptist's Baptist's message is to repent and return to the Lord. And the people of the nation are responding to that and saying, even in that moment, could he be the Christ? Could this be the promised Messiah that's coming to to set this right, to return the, the, the kingdom of God as it should be? So even in that 
challenge, even in that moment as John is, is preaching, there's this idea, there's this question of who is it that teaches these things? Who is it that has the authority to call people back to the Word? And there, there's this expectation and this anticipation of a coming Christ. And John says, He's here. He's coming. Uh, look in John chapter 1, uh, verse 29. We see this connection to Christ, not just not being the king alone, but also being the Lamb of God. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 29 says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist's testimony was pointing people to Jesus, to who he was. I think the reason it's important for you and I to know who Jesus is, to know what we believe about him, is because it changes how we live. It changes how we interact with what he says. It changes how we interact with the things that he, that he calls us to, with the promises that he left for us specifically the one that he's coming back. So what's the problem? What's the challenge for you and me? King Herod had a pretty interesting d discussion, didn't he? I mean, in his head, man, do I, do I follow, do I follow this, this God thing? Do I, do I go back to the law? Do I listen to John the Baptist and repent from all these things that I'm doing? Or do I just keep doing my sin? Do I just keep living in the, the, the fleshly desires, the things that I love to do? The reality is, is that Herod chose to stay in his sin. And in the midst of that moment, he gets caught between the two and John loses his life. Uh, honestly, there's part of me that feels like, wow, that was a, that's a pretty trivial way for the, the herald of the coming king to die. Right? It seems that he's caught in a party, and his host gets drunk and makes a, makes a vow, and it, it costs him his head. I don't know. Some, some, I, I just think, oh, wow. The reality is for you and for me is that the cost of following Jesus is high. It, it, it's so high that when you come home from work after doing all your sermon preparation, and you come in and you find water dripping in your, in your utility room, that it should change how I live there, that I should die to myself even at that moment, the desire to sit down and take a break and not have to deal with a water pipe that's bursting. Don't I have the right to not deal with that? Come on, people, help me out here. In my heart, I want to say, yeah. Lord, I'm doing. I'm working hard for you. I'm. I'm. I'm trying to have sermons. Oh, I've got all this stuff. I mean, I've even put up with dumb people on the road today. Look at how good I'm doing. It changes how we live, even in those moments. Because at that moment, at that moment, my response at that time should have been, Lord, I don't live to serve myself. Even in that moment, to, to respond to him appropriately it would have said, Shane, you got to die to you right now. Because who was on the throne at that minute when I was getting mad? It was me. Right? 
When I started to get upset about God letting me find a leaking, look, look, at, look at the irony of this. It was a pinhole leak. It could have been a half-inch open hole. I could have come home and found the basement floor flooded, the whole thing. But God allowed a pinhole leak. Thank you, Jesus. Why was that not my response? I know why. It's because I was tired. And the reality is the cost of dying to myself is greater than I remember it to be most days. The cost of dying to myself is more than I at times am willing to give. That's part of what is becoming evident to me. I know what the cost is. I know what I'm supposed to do. But the reality is, is that it's often more than I want to give. Look in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23. Jesus is foretelling, foretelling his death to his disciples in verses 21 and 22. Right after Peter makes his great confession of faith in verse 18 of chapter 9, in Luke 23, Jesus says this, and he said to them, or he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And need one page. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my word, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. When he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus had a clear understanding of the cost. And he tells his disciples the cost of following him. And it is the cost of dying to ourselves daily, denying ourselves. Why is that so difficult? I really think that the difficulty is in the waiting, right? Um, you know, we see that the nation of Israel looking forward to Elijah and excited about Elijah coming. Uh, they weren't excited about Christ coming, partly because Christ didn't do it the way he, they wanted him to, Right? Had he come in and, ex and thrown Rome out and set himself up on his throne and taken over the, you know, and run his kingdom the way that they had planned and had the disciples got to sit, each one of them, I don't know how they would have picked out who was going to be on the, you know, the most important to Jesus because they fought about that even when he told them that he was going to die. They wanted to know who was the most important. And so they would have had to figure out all of those ranks and, and that, that the guys, everybody would have been, oh, yay, Jesus. But instead he came back and he said, Repent. Return to the Lord. Serve like I do. Live selflessly like I do. I think the issue is it's hard for you and for me at times to faithfully wait. I want to end and remind us of this passage in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Peter is reminding the church to faithfully wait for the Lord to wait for his return because it's taken a long time in their minds. And he says this in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, 
but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think the reality of our hearts, the reality of Herod's heart and the the nation of Israel is that when Jesus moved on earth, people missed it because he didn't do it the way that they wanted him to. They didn't say what they wanted him to say. He called them to a life that they didn't want to live. And brothers and sisters, I feel like that's some of what Christ calls us to, to die to ourselves, to live expectantly for his return, but to live in a relationship with him here now, today, not so focused on the end that we become discouraged because he doesn't come back in our lifetime, or he doesn't fix the water pipes without us having to be involved in it. Maybe our government goes completely south and suddenly the church is no longer in existence the way that we know it. What are we going to do then? Are we going to just hang up the sheet and go home and say, well, that was a good try. Great while it lasted. Or are we going to know Jesus in such a way that it won't matter? Because we're willing to die every day and pick up the cross and follow him today with where he calls us to that we would turn to his word and say, God, you use this to transform my heart. Make me who you want me to be. We have so many things that we could be frustrated, upset, distracted, or turned around on in this life. So easy. My privilege is to stand up here and tell you guys how messed up I am. But every one of us has these struggles. Every one of us has to choose. Are we going to follow Jesus as he says he is in Scripture? Or are we going to give in and we're going to live in the desires of our flesh and reject that truth just like Herod did? That's, the, that's for you and for me. Individually, we get to choose. And so who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? Is he the Christ, the coming Messiah? Was he sitting at the right hand of God when he spoke our world into existence, when he breathed the stars into existence? Is that the Jesus that you know? Or is it just a good religious thing to do on Sunday? Is he just the genie of help that when life stinks, we rub on it and ask him to come in and rescue us? We have to choose. We have to make a decision because it changes how we live. It is incredibly important. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I'm in awe that you tolerate us. More than tolerate, God, I'm in awe that you love us that your love extended it extended to mankind while we were your enemy god that your grace and your long suffering and your patient 
your patience extends to us while we are rebellious and stubborn. And yet the truth of the gospel says, Father, that the blood of Christ, the new covenant in Christ's blood has paid the price and that our sin is paid for. And according to Hebrews 10, 14, with that one sacrifice, you have perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We are your children if we belong to you. God, I pray that you would change our hearts and our minds about who our Lord and Savior is. Help us to know you and to know Jesus, to know who this is that is being described to us. Jesus Christ, as, as part of the Trinity, is one with you, Father. As we learned at men's breakfast, that we are in him and he is in us. God, I pray that it would transform our hearts and our minds, the way we live, the way we deal with conflict this week in our homes, the way we deal with rude people on the streets or in, in businesses, the way that we deal with broken water pipes and, and uh, broken hearts. God, that it would change how we live. There's a world watching to see if the church is real. Your word says that they will know us by our love for one another. As we love one another, as we live in this truth, the world will say, these are truly Christ's disciples. God, that that would be, that that would be our testimony. I just pray that you would bring to truth, bring to light that truth in our hearts and in our minds this week as we interact with each other and as we interact with the difficulties of life in our first world problems. Help us to glorify you this week, Lord, in your name. Amen.